you probably all have experienced the kind of person who simply always needs to be the center of attention. And I know that because I'm a young parent and I have young children. And all of you who have had young children have probably had one or two or more that have at different times wanted to be the center of attention, right? The adults are talking and the child feels the need to jump in and do something silly, something goofy, something funny, so that everyone watches him or her. I mean, this is just a common mark of humanity. I want to be the spotlight on me. And in fact, we don't always grow out of that, do we? There are those, and maybe you're reflecting on it in your own life or in the lives of others, who feel that same need. I was reflecting on this as I thought about a politician, a current politician, who not that long ago was giving a story and talking about how 9-11 happened. And the very next day, he talks about 9-11. He was there looking at the site, the ground zero of 9-11. Well, of course, we've got, we've got the internet now, right? And they went and investigated, in fact, what this politician had been doing the day after 9-11, and it wasn't standing on ground zero looking at what was going on. What happens? There is something, maybe it's particular to our politician class, let's be honest, that loves putting themselves in the center, right? This story of American history is really about me. I am the one who's in the center of all these grand events. There, there is something about that person who, who wants to be in the center. We know about that and sometimes, or oftentimes, we're repulsed by it. No, that's not right. It's not all about you. But there are also people who need to be in the center. I just want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to imagine that there is a board meeting a company is making a really significant decision. And the chief executive officer, the CEO of the company, who ultimately it's, it's his or her decision, and that person is sitting there in the meeting, and you look around and they're nowhere to be seen. You say, where is this person? A huge decision is about to be made. You, you, you can't be running from this. You, you are in the center. It would be like in, in our government if, if there were a, a need to declare war or to make a significant decision and the president is nowhere to be found. The president is run off. He's not in the center. It's someone else. You'd say, well, that's not right either. Of course. There are some people who want to be in the center when they really shouldn't be. And there are some people who are in the center of things because it's right for them to be. I want you to think about these two kinds of people today. Because what I was reflecting on as I thought about Jesus and the institution here in these five verses of the Lord's Supper, what we will happen to be celebrating immediately after this service, is that Jesus is putting himself in the center. The center of what? the center of Israel's most significant national and religious celebration. Remember we've been talking about Passover as we've been going through Mark 14 together. Jesus tells his disciples to prepare the Passover and they go and prepare it. 
And now they are in the Passover meal and Jesus is warning them, his disciples, and ultimately warning Judas that one of you is going to betray me and it would be good for that betrayer. It would be better for him if he had never been born. A remarkable statement. And now the disciples are celebrating with Jesus the Passover dinner, the central national and religious celebration of the Jewish people even to this day. Now, this celebration had a kind of liturgy or a, or a kind of ceremony. And it's hard to know exactly what that ceremony was at Jesus' day. But if we just go forward a hundred or two hundred years or so, we see in the Jewish holy writings, we see the description of, the, of this liturgy, this order of service, this ceremony that is still followed to today, if you've ever had a Passover. There are, I think, four cups of wine, the fruit of the vine. There are unle there's unleavened bread, think like crackers, like the ones that we're going to partake of here just after our service. There are bitter herbs that reflect the bondage and the bitter slavery that Israel was under in Egypt. There is a lamb that has been killed as a sacrifice, and lamb is eaten. And different times, a different cup will be held up and there will be a reading done or a certain statement made. At one point in the Passover feast, the youngest person in the household asks the leader, the father of the household, and asks, why are we eating this? Why are we doing this? And that gives the opportunity to, to, for, the, for the father to explain, here's why, because we were in bondage in Egypt and, and, and God brought us out. It, this is a ceremony. It is a liturgy. It is a kind of procession that all all of these disciples would have known. They would have done over and over and over again. And they would have probably known it by heart what was going on in this Passover dinner. Just put yourself there. It's like Christmas. It's like Thanksgiving. It's like your family holiday where you just do things a certain way, but now it has religious significance for them. It's celebrating God bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt in the Old Testament. And now imagine Jesus holding up the bread, the unleavened bread, and he breaks it. But instead of doing the traditional reading or statement that they all would have been expecting, he says, this, this is my body. Whoa. What? That, that's not how the Passover dinner goes. No, Jesus is really obviously saying, boys, this is about me. This is my body. And then as the dinner continues on, Jesus holds up the cup. Some believe it was the third cup of the Passover meal. We can't say for sure. The Holy Spirit didn't intend to tell us. It's a little bit of speculation. Some believe it was the third cup and holds it up. And instead of following, if you will, the prescribed approach, he says, this is the blood of the New Covenant, the New Testament, which is shed for many. 
boys, this is about me. I want you to think about that. How, how extraordinary that was. How these disciples must have reacted to Jesus, their teacher, taking their national and religious celebration and saying, this is about me. I'm in the center of this. The spotlight is on me. Because that's exactly what he did. And what I want to encourage you today is that in all of these things about who Jesus is and what we've been seeing him do in this last week of his earthly pre-resurrection life, you are going to have to decide whether the Jesus who made it all about him is an imposter who should be rejected. Who do you think you are trying to say the Passover is about you? Or whether he truly is at the center. And therefore, he must be at the center of your life. Which is it? Is he the one who dares to stand in the national Israel, the Israelite feast, and say, here, I'm giving you something new to follow? Is that right? Because he is the king of God, the savior of the world? Or is he a fraud, an imposter, a liar, of some kind of obsessively proud person who says, i got to make everything about me? Which is it? This is what we're going to look at this morning. The title of the message is, From Passover to Lord's Supper. From Passover, the national Israelite Jewish religious and national celebration, to Lord's Supper what we will be celebrating after the service once again this morning. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that Jesus is putting himself at the center in at least three ways that we should look at this morning and ask whether we believe and whether we have embraced for ourselves. The first thing that Jesus is putting himself at the center of in this move from Passover to Lord's Supper is he puts himself at the center of redemption. At the center of redemption. Now, you have to step back to understand, again, what Passover was. We looked at this a few weeks ago. We'll just briefly touch, uh, touch on it again. At the heart of Passover for the, Isra- for the Jewish people was redemption. It was deliverance. It was salvation. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, the Jews, were enslaved. They were enslaved by the Egyptians, a people who held them under and forced them to work in very cruel and inhumane ways. They butchered the Jews. In fact, Pharaoh ordered that every male child born to an Israelite family was to be slaughtered. This was horrific treatment. And these people, the Jews, the people of God, were under great difficulty and under great bondage. And the story of redemption in the Passover is God stepping in, of God intervening, of God sending his messengers, Moses and Aaron, to Exodus and saying, let my people go. And and Pharaoh repeatedly saying, no, I will not. 
and God bringing judgment on him and on his people, bringing plague after plague after plague as, as, as bringing the pressure of God to bear on them. And stubborn Pharaoh said no and continued to say no and no until finally God brought the last, the tenth plague, in which after that Pharaoh said go. And God's people were freed from slavery. What is the Passover about? Remember that it was about God passing over the Jewish people to judge their adversaries, the Egyptians. Do you remember that at the heart of the Passover was a sacrifice? A lamb was chosen from the flock and it was killed for each family or perhaps two families or three families together if they were smaller families. And a lamb was killed and its blood was taken and it was dipped on the sides of the doorpost, the front door of the house, and dipped over the, 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 uh, the top post of the house. And as God said in Exodus chapter 12, He said that blood that is placed on there, I will pass through the land of Egypt. As, as Exodus tells us, God told his people, when I see that blood, when I see the blood of that lamb, I will pass over you. I will not bring my judgment on you. This is a story of redemption through sacrifice. A lamb was sacrificed in the place of the one who would otherwise receive judgment. And you see, that is why the New Testament says that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That's the New Testament fulfillment of that Old Testament picture. That Jesus came as the Lamb of God. That Jesus was killed, not on accident, but as an intentional, a purposeful sacrifice of God for people who would otherwise receive God's judgment. And that as Jesus was slain, and as his blood was shed, when God sees his blood applied to us, to our lives, God passes over us in judgment. His judgment does not fall on us. Our safety is in the sacrifice that Jesus, the Lamb of God, made for our sins. You can imagine, as they were eating every Passover, the Old Testament people of God, they themselves killed that lamb. They heard the, the cry of its death. They knew what they had done. They took that blood, they put it on, and then they ate that lamb. And as they ate that lamb, they would have been reflecting, this animal died for me. This animal died, if you will, in my place. It was a substitute. And in the same way, Jesus died as a substitute for us. Listen to what Peter says, a man who was here for this Lord's Supper, the very first one. In 1 Peter 1, he says, Ye know that ye were not redeemed or, or saved or delivered with corruptible things as silver and gold. You didn't become, come into the family of God by paying a price for it with money. That's not how you became redeemed. How are you redeemed? With the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That is the picture of the Passover sacrifice. But it's more than that. Notice what Jesus says. Will you look with me in Mark chapter 14? 
Jesus has said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, verse 23, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. So he takes the cup, and he says, this is my blood of the New Testament. Literally, that word is a covenant. It's my blood of, of a new covenant. You say, what's a covenant? Well, in old times, a covenant might be between two businessmen. Like, like a contract. A binding legal agreement that we'd call a contract today. But in a spiritual sense, in a religious sense, when God makes a covenant with you, it is God making a promise to you. It is God making a commitment to you. It is God saying on the, on, on, on the basis of his honesty and his honor, saying, I promise I will do this. God binds himself to you in a covenant. And in the Old Testament, we see the covenant made to Abraham. We see the covenant made to, um, to the people of Israel through Moses and his law. We see the covenant made to David. And we see in Jeremiah chapter 33, God telling his people that there was a new covenant coming. There was a new commitment, a new set of promises coming from God to his people. And this is what Jesus is saying when he says, this blood, this is the new covenant. This is the new set of promises. This is God's commitment to you. What commitment? What commitment did God make in the blood of Jesus Christ? He made the covenant that he would forgive your sins and that he would not remember your iniquities anymore. What an amazing commitment that is from God, who is a righteous judge and who must punish my sin and yours. He, if he is to be a righteous judge, he must act against wrongdoing. That's true of every single system of justice. If you were to go down to the Hennepin County Courthouse this week and you were to attend a criminal trial and there were a judge there wearing a black robe and it was his job to sentence and there had been a criminal, lawful criminal trial and the defendant had been found guilty for his serious acts against the law that injured others and that judge wearing a black robe said, I don't care that he's been found guilty. I will let him free without any punishment you all would say that is an unjust judge. He didn't do what was right. And yet mankind today labors under the lie that when it comes to the final judgment, a righteous and a just judge will overlook their wrongdoing against him, their crimes against their fellow neighbors and against him, the things that they have done that have hurt other people and have hurt themselves. That an unjust, that, that God, a righteous judge, will simply say, well, you've got some good things to come in to my eternal life. No. God, as a righteous judge, God, as a just judge, must punish 
sin, he must execute his judgment against it. And that leaves me in a terrible position because I have sinned against him. I have violated his laws repeatedly. I have hurt other people. I deserve the punishment of God in what the Bible calls hell. God's covenant to you, God's commitment to you, is that because His Son died as a substitute in your place, He gave Himself as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice for you. If you trust in Him, if you embrace Him, if His blood is applied to your life, you will be forgiven and the judgment of God will pass over you. That is the good news that we celebrate in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the fundamental truth that this church stands upon and intends to proclaim to this entire city. That's what we believe. That God's covenant to you is not rooted in how well you perform. It's rooted in what His Son performed on your behalf, in your place. Jesus held up that cup and he said, this this is my blood and I'm sealing a covenant to you with my blood. I am making God's promise, his commitment to you that because of my perfect sacrifice, your sins can be forgiven forever and my eternal life can be your eternal life. It's a new covenant. And it was sealed with his blood. You probably remember as children, maybe some of you did that, you made a little oath or some kind of commitment or promise and you sealed it with your blood. This was serious, right? This was real. I mean it all. I'll seal it with my blood. That's exactly what Jesus did. He sealed the new covenant with his blood. You say, well, how does that then, what does that mean? for this Lord's Supper that he instituted. Well, remember what happened. He broke the bread and he gave it to them. And what does it say here? He says, take, eat. What an interesting thing. This is my body, so eat it. This is my blood in this cup, so drink it. Now, I think probably most of you know that these verses have been at the heart of so much controversy and disagreement in our Christian world. For centuries, people have been arguing what Jesus' words mean here. I'm going to get to that in just a minute, but let's just stop here for just a minute. Can we understand the significance of these words? What Jesus is saying when he takes the bread and he says, eat it, this is my body, what he's saying is at least this. I need to go from being outside of you to being inside of you. Does that make sense? When you are eating me, you are feeding on me. When I eat food, it goes from outside me and it goes to inside me to be digested and to profit my entire body, right? That's the picture. Take it and eat it. I need to go from being outside you to inside you. Now, we deal with this concept all the time. Have you ever been in a class and you have had words from your teacher go in one ear and... Why do we say that? Because the words from your teacher are supposed to go into one ear 
and stay there. They're supposed to be in your brain, and you're supposed to be thinking about it and pondering it, right? That's the idea. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, your relationship to me is not, if you will, hearing my words come in one ear and out the other. Your relationship to me is rooted in you, can we put it this way, receiving me, receiving me, me coming in to stay, to live. You see, the significance of what Jesus is saying here is, I must be received by you in order to save you, in order to redeem you. And this, friends, is why we really need to challenge our own basis of why we think we're Christians, of why we think we're saved. If you were to ask many people in our Christian world today, why are you saved? Well, I, I was baptized as a baby. Now, let's be honest here, friends. Do you believe that you receive Jesus as, as your embrace of him when unbeknownst to you as a baby without any conscious thought of your own, some water was sprinkled on your head? In what way would we say that you received Jesus? Or there are others who would say, well, I think I'm a good person and I do some good things and, and I work hard and I try to help people and, and, and I think I do more good than bad. Well, friend, I, that's not the question. What Jesus is saying here is you must receive him in order to have his life. You say, well, well, how do I receive him? Well, John 6 is a very key passage to understanding this. I'll just, I'll just point to it, and you can go study it for yourself. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that comes to me will never hunger. Why? Because who's he feeding on? If you come to me, who are you feeding on? Jesus. If you're feeding on Jesus, he's saying, you'll never hunger because I'm the bread of life. And then he says, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Why will he never get thirsty in a spiritual sense, in an inward sense? Why? Because who's he drinking of? Jesus. You see? That's what he's saying. So what he's saying is this. How do you receive me? You come to me and you believe on me. You see, you come to me and you believe on me. You come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe that you are the Lamb of God who will take away my sin if I ask. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you are God. I believe that what the Bible says about you is true and I, by faith, am embracing you. I am receiving you as my own. And when you do that, he, you receive him. You take him. He enters by his spirit. That is what we believe. That is the heart of our Christian faith. And Jesus is telling us, this is what it looks like. This is what it means to receive me. And that, I think, helps us answer the question of what happens when we take the Lord's Supper. You see, for those of you who are raised in a Roman Catholic church or a family, you were taught that when the priest blesses the bread and the cup at what is called Mass, that bread and that cup, that wine, 
literally become the body and blood of Christ. Listen to the Roman Catholic Catechism. This is from the Council of Trent, that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of His blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. The, the, the bread literally becomes the body of Christ, and you consume His body. And the wine literally becomes the blood of Christ and you consume it. If you were raised in a Lutheran home, you were likely taught something called consubstantiation. It is the idea that the, the bread and the cup don't, don't physically become the body and blood of Christ. But nonetheless, the, the, the body and blood of Christ come with it. Or as the Lutherans might say, it is the, the, the body of Christ is in, with, and under those elements. Transubstantiation, consubstantiation. Now I will tell you I believe neither of those things and I don't believe either of those things are supported biblically. What we believe and what we teach here and what we believe the Bible makes the, um, supports the best is that these elements are simply symbols. They are simply symbols that stand in the place of what Jesus is saying, and that this would have been obvious to his disciples. Friends, Jesus was sitting in front of them in flesh and blood with, with a physical body. And when he held up a piece of bread and he said, this is my body, do you think any of them thought that that literally became the body of the person who was sitting in front of them with a body? Do you think that's what they believed? I don't. I imagine for a moment if I took off my ring and I said, friends, this is my marriage. This is my marriage. I don't think one of you would naturally understand me to be saying, if I lose this ring, I'm not married anymore. I don't think any one of you would, would believe that. I don't think any one of you would say, oh, he's saying that this is somehow his actual marriage vow. I don't think any of you would believe that. I think what you would say is, oh, he's trying to teach us something. He's, maybe he's trying to say that it's a circle, it's a perfect circle, which represents how lasting his marriage is. Maybe he's talking about the fact that it's a precious metal, and so his marriage is precious to him. Maybe there's something else. He wears it on his finger, it is close to him, it is always with him, his marriage. You would believe that I, I, was, I was representing something to you. Not that I was saying this actually was literally what I was symbolizing. And in the same way, I don't believe for a moment that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, those elements actually physically become the body and blood of Christ. No, they are symbols to represent something. In the same way, his disciples would have understood it when Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the door. Do you think any of them were confused that Jesus might actually be a wooden door that you could get splinters on if you rubbed your hand against it? I don't think so. Jesus was representing. This is how he talked all the time. And I believe in the same way, this is a symbol that we can come into and our faith indeed can feed on and we can profit from and we can draw closer to him in. But nonetheless, it does not physically become the body and blood of Christ or come within and under it. So notice where we focus the majority of our time here. This is... 
the center of redemption. Jesus is saying, this is my body and this is my blood and I am at the center of your redemption before God. The forgiveness of your sins. My blood, which is shed for many. Praise God that it was shed for us. Amen. Secondly, let's look, and just briefly, not only did Jesus place himself at the center of redemption, notice that he's placed himself at the center of their relationships. Will you notice something very interesting with me from this text? Jesus takes the bread and gives it to them and said, take, eat, all of you. That's the idea. You eat it. And they did, all of them. By the way, it seems likely that Judas had already gone. It seems very likely if you piece together the Bible passages that Judas had already left. We're down to the 11 disciples. And notice... Jesus says, you eat. And then go ahead to verse 23. And they took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. They all did. Can you imagine the, the, the power of that idea as Jesus has said, this is the cup of the New Testament, the New Covenant, that, that is my blood which is shed for many. And then they passed it. And they drank it, and they passed the cup, and the next guy drank it, and they passed it, and the next guy drank it, and every single one of them were drinking from the same cup? You say, well, well what's, what's the significance of that? Isn't it this? What ultimately unites us as followers of Jesus Christ? Is it our performance? Well, it sure couldn't have been for these guys. What did these guys do after they took this first Lord's Supper? They went out and they immediately started prospering spiritually, didn't they? Didn't they immediately just do great things spiritually? No, what'd they do? They all went out and abandoned him. And Jesus tried to call a prayer meeting with three of his disciples and they all fell asleep. And then the sh soldiers show up, and all of them run away, and then Peter follows behind to the place and denies him publicly to some servant girls. Does that sound like people who are prospering and performing spiritually? Woohoo! We got this Lord's Supper, and now we're great! No, they failed miserably. The reality is that you and I fail miserably in our spiritual lives we find ourselves sometimes falling into the same patterns of sin we've been at in the past. We find ourselves sometimes our desire flagging for the things of God and lessening, and we find ourselves failing. And then we remember that what brought us into a covenant with God in the first place was never my performance. It was always only Him. It was always, always only his, the blood of His Son. It was always only by grace ye are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, not of your performance. Why? Lest any man should boast. Unless we thought I made it, I did it. No. You say, well, what does that have to do with our unity together? Well, friends, look around at a church like this. What unites us? Think about all the things that would separate us. Different socioeconomic statuses, people who are more wealthy or people who are more impoverished, people who are more educated or less educated, people who are different skin tones, people who are from different ethnic backgrounds, people who, 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 who have different levels of social status, people who speak different languages, people who, 
who have all the kinds of political divisions that our world has, what could possibly unite this group? I'll tell you. The same blood of Jesus. The same blood of Jesus, if you will, that all of us needed to drink of before we entered the family of God. That one cup went around to all 11 disciples and they all drank out of it. And that was what united them. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Will you, will you, will you hear this? In 1 Corinthians 10 in verse 16 to 17, he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, that's the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? That's where we get the word communion from. The communion. Do you know what communion means? It means sharing. It means a partnership. It means that when we sit in this side of the, of the sanctuary and participate in the Lord's Supper together, we're all sharing in it together. There's no one who's standing up with their head way taller than the next one. There's no one who's in there because of their wealth. There's no one who's elevated because of their skin color. There's no divisions. There's no differences other than what unites us, which is that we all had to come in the same way by receiving Jesus Christ and now sharing in Him together. When we are in Christ, friends, we are more united than the world could possibly imagine. And that's why it's so tragic to me that too often our Christian churches and our Christian relationships are severed and disunited in ways that the world puts us to shame on. Here's what I mean. Listen to what I mean by this. Do you know in, in football stadiums all across the country today, there will be thousands of strangers who will be best of friends for one afternoon. They'll hug complete strangers when their team scores a touchdown. They'll dance and they'll shout and they'll sing and give high fives to people and they will utterly be united. Why? Because they all have a common purpose. They want that football team to win. There are political rallies where their favorite candidate is up and talking and they're shouting and singing together and they're chanting together and they're saying all their different slogans from all different backgrounds, from all different people. Why? Because they're united around one thing. And what a shame it is. What a shame it is to us as Christians when strangers in a football stadium on Sunday and when strangers at a political rally on Monday and sometimes to our shame throughout a week, even the gangs in this city represent the unity that God intends for his body of Christ better than we do. What is Jesus telling us? He's saying what unites you is my body and my blood and nothing else. And when all of you drink from that cup, when all of you come into the family of God through no goodness of your own, through no performance of your own, but solely through my sacrifice, we have the perfect ground for unity with one another because it's nothing about us and it's all about Him. It's like that sports team that you might have played on 
where suddenly at one point in the year people stopped playing for the name on the front of the jersey and they started playing for their own name on the back of the jersey. You know how that team ends up. It never ends up well. But when we're united in Christ and we're focused only on his name and on his sacrifice and on his work on our behalf, we have the perfect ground for our relationship with one another. Jesus is placing himself at the center of redemption, of our redemption. He's placing himself at the center of our relationships with other Christians. And finally, he's placing himself at the center of redemptive history. Notice with me just briefly here in verse 25. He says, Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine. I'm not going to participate in this Passover, in this Lord's Supper again, until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Don't miss. Don't miss that. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. He's actually making a promise there. He's saying, I'm not going to drink of this same supper, of this same celebration, until... In other words, I'm going to someday. I'm going to drink it new with you, we read elsewhere, in the kingdom of God. Friends, do you know Jesus is telling us, and the book of Revelation is confirming it. You can look it up in Revelation chapter 19. There's something the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. When all of God's people across the ages will be gathered together, when his church will be fully gathered in, and there will be a great feast. Oh, I don't know if we could call it a Passover feast. I don't know the best way to call it other than just to say it's going to be a feast. And presiding at that feast will be Jesus, our Savior. And in that feast, Jesus will participate in this precious ceremony once again. And we will look around that feast and we will see people from every skin color, from every language, from every tribe and every nation under heaven, from every, every socioeconomic class, rich and poor, from every educational background, from every level of, of prominence, from the highest to the lowest, from every social class. And we will all be gathered around participating there solely because of what Jesus did and none of what we have done. And at that moment, friends... You and I, I'm sure, will just spontaneously erupt. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. You are worthy, Jesus. You have done this. You have brought this feast together. You are the one who has all brought us here. You are the one who has poured out your love and your grace to us. And we worship you. Because you're at the center of it all. No, friends, it wasn't wrong for Jesus to put himself at the center of this Passover dinner. Because in all things, Jesus is at the center. He was at the center of creation. He was at the center of redemption. He is at the center of your relationships with one another. He is at the center of God's redemptive history. And one day, it will be seen how he has brought all of history together in himself. And as we close here this morning, I want to ask simply one question to you this morning. Is he at the center of your life? Have you received him by faith? Have you come to him? Have you believed in him? And are you living in such a way 
that those who are around you say, Jesus is at the center of his life. Jesus is at the center of her life. Oh, it's the most fitting thing. It's the most right thing that for those who have been saved by Jesus, by those who have been redeemed and restored to a relationship with God and a true and solid hope of eternal life, that those people are the ones who live with Jesus at the center.